You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323 by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 2, given on January 2nd, 1921. Yesterday I showed how two scientific disciplines that our modern ideas view as widely separated are somehow connected. I sought to show that the science of astronomy ought to provide certain insights, which should then be utilized in an entirely different scientific discipline from which the study and method of astronomy are completely excluded nowadays. In other words, I sought to show that astronomy has to be linked with embryology. It's impossible to understand the phenomena of cell development, especially of the gametes, without calling to our aid the data of astronomy, which apparently lie so far removed from embryology. I pointed out that we need to institute a reorganization of the sciences, because anyone whose research is narrowly specialized today will inevitably feel hemmed in by disciplinary boundaries. These narrow specialists have no possibility of applying their restricted knowledge and experience to spheres which may actually lie near to hand, but have been presented to us only from certain aspects, so that they don't reveal their full countenance to us. If it's simply true, as will emerge in these lectures, that we can understand the successive stages in human embryonic development only when we understand their counter-image the phenomena of the heavens. If this is a fact, and that will turn out to be the case, then we can't do embryology without doing astronomy. Nor can we study astronomy without shedding new light upon the facts of embryology. In astronomy we're studying something that reveals its most important effects in the development of the human embryo. So, then, how can we expect to gain clarity regarding the meaning and the rationality of astronomical facts, if we fail to make any kind of connection between these facts and the realm in which this meaning and rationality are revealed. You see how necessary it is to get out of the chaos in which science is stuck today if we want to arrive at a rational worldview. However, if you accept only what's customary today, then it'll be very difficult to grasp anything like what I said yesterday, even as a general idea. The evolution of time has brought forth a paradigm in which astronomical facts are grasped only through mathematics and mechanics, while embryological facts are recorded in a way that completely ignores everything of the nature of mathematics or mechanics. And even if the mathematical or mechanical considerations are related to embryology somehow, it's done in a superficial way. 
without even asking how it's possible that certain aspects of embryonic development can also be expressed in mathematical and mechanical terms. Let me just draw your attention to one of Goethe's sayings, uttered out of a certain feeling. We might call it a, in quotes, feeling knowledge, but indicating something of extraordinary significance. Parenthesis, you can read about it in Goethe's title, Sayings, and in the commentary I wrote for the volumes containing Goethe's scientific works in Kirchner's collection of German national literature, where I discuss this saying in detail. Close parenthesis. Goethe says there, People think of natural phenomena as so completely separate from the human observer that they're tending ever more and more to disregard human nature itself in their study of natural phenomena. But Goethe believed that natural phenomena reveal their true meaning only if they are viewed everywhere in their connection with human nature, with the human constitution as a whole. In saying this, Goethe pointed to a method of research which has become essentially anathema now. Today people seek an objective understanding of nature through research that has been completely divorced from the human being. This is particularly noticeable in a scientific discipline such as astronomy, where no account is taken of human nature at all. On the contrary, people are proud of the apparently objective results they've brought to light, showing that humans are only a grain of dust upon an earth which has somehow been fused into a planet, moving first around the sun and then in some way or other moving with the sun in space. They are proud that they don't need to pay attention to this, quote, grain of dust, close quote, that wanders about upon the earth, that they need to pay attention to everything but the human, above all, in considering the great celestial phenomena. But the question is, can any real results be obtained by employing such a method? Let me call attention once again to the methodological procedure we must employ in these lectures. Anything that will feel like a proof will emerge only in the further course of the lectures. Today we must take a good deal simply from observation in order to form certain preliminary ideas. We first have to build up certain necessary concepts. Only then will we be able to proceed to the verification of those concepts. From what source, then, can we gain something real regarding the celestial phenomena? This question must accompany us above all others. Is there any knowledge to be gained regarding celestial phenomena exclusively through the mathematics that we apply to them? As long as we don't adopt the arrogant position of thinking how we have, quote, reached our splendid heights, close quote, today, and how all that went before us was childish, the evolution of human consciousness can teach us how the points of view can shift. You see, perspectives are available from which one can develop a great reverence for the celestial observations carried out, for instance, by the ancient Chaldeans. The ancient Chaldeans made very exact observations concerning the connection of human time reckoning with the heavenly phenomena. They developed an extraordinarily significant science of the calendar. 
Much that appears self-evident to us in the conduct of science today actually dates back to the Chaldeans. Yet, the Chaldeans were satisfied with a mathematical model of the heavens that portrayed the earth more or less as a flat disk, with the hollow hemisphere of the heavenly vault arched above, the fixed stars fastened to it, and the planets moving over it. Parenthesis, among the planets they also included the sun. Close parenthesis. They made their calculations with this picture in the background. Their calculations, for the most part, were correct, in spite of being based upon a model which the science of today can only describe as a fundamental error, as something childish. Science, or rather the scientific tendency and direction, then went on evolving. There was a stage when it was imagined that the earth stood still, but that Venus and Mercury moved round the sun. Now, the sun formed the central point, as it were, for the motions of Venus and Mercury, while the other planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, moved around the earth rather than the sun, and the fixed stars likewise revolved about the earth. Thereafter, astronomy progressed to making Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn also revolve around the sun. But the earth was still supposed to stand still, while the sun, with its encircling planets, as well as the starry heavens, revolved around the earth. Basically, this was still the view of Tycho Brahe, whereas his contemporary Copernicus established the other conception namely that the sun was to be regarded as standing still, and that the earth was to be reckoned among the planets revolving round the sun. Following hard one upon the other in the time of Copernicus were the two points of view, one which already existed in ancient Egypt, of the stationary earth with the other planets encircling the sun, still represented by Tycho Brahe, the other the Copernican conception, which broke radically with the idea of the origin of the coordinates being in the center of the earth, and simply transferred the origin to the center of the sun. For in the final analysis, the whole Copernican revolution was nothing else than this. The origin of the coordinates was displaced from the center of the earth to the center of the sun. What was actually Copernicus's question? His question was, how can we reduce these apparently complicated motions of the planets, for so they appear as observed from the earth, to simpler lines and curves? When the planets are observed from the earth, their movements can only be described as a variety of loops, such as this, see figure 1. If one takes the center of the earth as the origin of the coordinates, it becomes necessary to construct the movements of the planets in extraordinarily complicated curves. Copernicus said to himself, in effect, quote, As an experiment, I will place the origin of the whole coordinate system in the center of the sun. Close quote. Then the complicated planetary curves are reduced to simple circular movements, or, as was stated later, to ellipses. The whole thing was purely the construction of a world system that aimed at being able to represent the paths of the planets in the simplest possible curves. Now today we confront a very remarkable fact. 
when employed purely mathematically, this Copernican system supplies the necessary calculations concerning the observed phenomena, as well as, and no better, than any of the earlier ones. The eclipses of the sun and moon can be calculated with the ancient Chaldean system, with the Egyptian, with the Tychonic, and with the Copernican. The outer occurrences in the heavens, insofar as they relate to mechanics or mathematics, can thus be predicted. One system is as well suited as the another. It's only that the most elegant models follow from the Copernican system. But the strange thing is that in practical astronomy calculations are not made with the Copernican system. Curiously enough, in practical astronomy, to obtain, for example, what is needed to construct the calendar, the system of Tycho Brahe is used. So the upshot today is that we actually calculate with the Tychonic system, while viewing the Copernican system as correct. This shows how little that is really fundamental, how little of the essential nature of things is taken into consideration when the universe is modeled in purely mathematical curves or in terms of mechanical forces. Now, there is another very remarkable fact which I will only indicate today, so that we will understand each other about the aim of these lectures. I will speak further about it in succeeding lectures. In his deliberations, Copernicus bases his cosmic system upon three axioms. The first is that the earth rotates on its own north-south axis in 24 hours. The second principle on which Copernicus bases his picture of the heavens is that the earth moves round the sun. In its revolution around the sun, the earth itself, of course, also revolves in a certain way. This rotation, however, does not occur around the north-south axis of the earth, which always points to the North Pole, but around the axis of the ecliptic, which, as we know, is at an angle to the earth's own axis. Therefore, the earth goes through a rotation during a 24-hour day around its own north-south axis, and then, inasmuch as it performs approximately 365 such rotations per year, another rotation is added, an annual rotation, if we disregard the revolution round the sun. The earth then, if it always rotates thus, and then again revolves round the sun, behaves like the moon as it rotates around the earth, always turning the same side toward us. The earth does this too, inasmuch as it revolves around the sun, but not on the same axis as the one on which it rotates for the diurnal revolution. It revolves through this, quote, annual day, close quote, on another axis. This is an added movement, besides the one taking place in the 24-hour day. The third principle that Copernicus established is that not only does such a revolution of the earth take place around the north-south axis and a second revolution around the ecliptic, but that there is yet a third revolution, which appears as a retrograde movement of the north-south axis around the axis of the ecliptic. Thereby, in a certain sense, the revolution around the axis of the ecliptic is cancelled out 
due to this third revolution, the Earth's axis continuously points to the North Celestial Pole, Polaris, or the North Star. Whereas, by virtue of revolving around the Sun, the Earth's axis would have to describe a circle or an ellipse around the pole of the ecliptic, its own revolution, which takes the opposite direction. Parenthesis, every time the Earth proceeds a little further, its axis rotates backward. Close parenthesis. Causes it to point continually to the North Pole. Copernicus assumed this third principle, namely, the continued pointing of the Earth's axis to the pole comes about because, by a rotation of its own, a kind of inclination, it continuously cancels out the other revolution. This latter, therefore, has no effect in the course of the year, for it is constantly being annulled. In modern astronomy, founded as it is on the Copernican system, the extraordinary thing that has come about is that the first two axioms are accepted and the third is ignored. This third axiom is lightly brushed aside by saying that the stars are so far away that the earth axis, remaining parallel to itself, always points to the same spot. Thus it's assumed that the north-south axis of the earth in its revolution remains always parallel to itself. This was not assumed by Copernicus. On the contrary, he assumed a perpetual revolving of the Earth's axis. Modern astronomy is therefore not really based on the Copernican system, but accepts the first two axioms because they are convenient and discards the third, thus becoming lost in the fib that it's not necessary to suppose that the Earth's axis itself must move in order to keep pointing to the same spot in the heavens, but that the place itself is so far away that even if the axis does not move parallel to itself, it will still point to the same spot. Anyone can see that this is a fib. Hence we have a Copernican system in quotes today from which a most important element has actually been discarded. The development of modern astronomy is consistently presented in such a way that nobody notices an important element is missing. Yet the only way in which it's possible to describe it all so neatly is to say, quote, Here is the sun, the earth goes around in an ellipse, with the sun standing in one of its foci. Close quote, see figure 2. As time went on, it became impossible to hold to the starting point of the Copernican theory, namely that the sun stands still. A movement was now attributed to the sun, which was said to move forward with the holy lips, perpetually creating new ellipses, so to speak. It, see figure 3, it became necessary to introduce the sun's own movement, and this was done simply by adding something new to the picture they had before. A mathematical description is thus obtained, which is admittedly convenient, but few questions are asked regarding whether it's really possible about how matters really stand. As we'll see, it's only from the position of the stars, the apparent movement of the stars, that the Earth's movement can be deduced by this method. We shall see that it is of great significance whether or not one assumes a movement 
which indeed must be assumed, namely the aforesaid inclination of the earth's axis, perpetually annulling the annual rotation. Resultant movements, after all, are obtained by adding up the several separate movements. If one is left out, the whole is no longer true. Thus the whole theory that the earth moves around the sun in an ellipse comes into question. You see, purely from these historical facts that burning questions exist in astronomy today, burning questions, even though it seems to be the most exact science because it's the most mathematical, the question arises, why do we live in such uncertainty regarding a real science of astronomy? And then we have to ask further, turning the question in another direction, can we reach any real certainty through a purely mathematical approach? Consider that whenever we contemplate something mathematically, we remove the inquiry from any and all external reality. Mathematics is something that rises up out of our inner being. In mathematics, we lift ourselves up out of any kind of external reality. Therefore, right from the outset, it has to be understood that if we approach an external reality with a method of investigation that lifts itself out of reality, there are actually circumstances in which we can arrive only at something relative. To begin with, I am merely putting forward certain general considerations. We'll get to the reality soon enough. The issue is that when we regard things from a purely mathematical perspective, perhaps we're suffusing our inquiry with an entirely insufficient degree of reality. Perhaps the amount of energy we have devoted to permeating our contemplations with reality is completely insufficient to approach the phenomena of the outer world in the right way. What's really needed is for us to draw in the celestial phenomena as close as possible to ourselves as human beings and to cease contemplating them only as completely separate from our own human constitution. When I said that we have to view what takes place out there in the starry heavens through its expression in the embryonic process, I was describing only a special instance of this overarching need. But first let's look at the matter somewhat more superficially. Let's ask whether we can perhaps find an approach to the celestial phenomena other than the purely mathematical one. We can indeed bring the celestial phenomena in their connection with earthly life somewhat nearer to human nature if we begin by working with them in a qualitative way. Today, we will not disdain to begin laying down seemingly elementary ideas, precisely those that have been excluded from the foundations of modern astronomy. We will ask the following question. So, how does it stand with all those things that also play into the study of astronomy if we look to human life on earth? We can regard the external phenomena surrounding us from three different points of view. We can regard them from three different standpoints that I would like to call solar life or the life of the sun, lunar life, and terrestrial or telluric life. Let's think first in quite a popular, even elementary way, 
how it is that these three domains play out around and within us as human beings. At once it becomes perfectly clear that there's something on the earth that's profoundly dependent upon the life of the sun, one part of which is the question whether the sun stands still or moves, and so forth. But today we want to leave aside the quantitative aspect and merely consider the qualitative. Let's try to be as clear as to how, for instance, the vegetation of any given region depends upon solar life. Here we need only call to mind what's very well known with regard to vegetation, namely the difference in the vegetation during spring, summer, autumn, and winter, in order to be able to say what we're seeing in the vegetation itself is actually an imprint of solar life. The earth opens herself in a given region to what is outside her in celestial space, and this opening up reveals itself in the unfolding of vegetative life. As the earth closes herself again to solar life, the vegetation recedes. There is, however, a certain reciprocal interaction between what's merely terrestrial and what's solar. Consider just how great the difference is within solar life when terrestrial conditions change. We have to collect some elementary facts, and then you'll see how they lead us further. Take, for example, Egypt and Peru two regions in the tropical zone, Egypt as a lowland plain, Peru as a plateau. Now compare the vegetation. You'll see how the terrestrial element, simply the distance from the center of the earth in this instance, plays its part in conjunction with solar life. You only need study the vegetation over the earth, regarding the earth not just in its mineral aspects, but including the realm of plants as well. And in the image of the vegetation, you have a starting point from which you can begin to develop views regarding the relations between terrestrial and celestial phenomena. But we perceive these relations especially when we turn our attention to humanity. We have, in the first place, two opposites on the earth, the polar regions and the tropical regions. The effect of this polarity shows itself very clearly in human life. Surely you will agree that life in the polar regions calls forth psychological traits that are more or less a state of apathy. The stark contrast between a long winter and a long summer which are almost like one long day and one long night, evokes within the inhabitants a certain apathy. It is as though the milieu in which the inhabitants live makes them apathetic. The tropics are another region that makes its inhabitants apathetic. But the apathy of the polar regions is based upon sparse external vegetation, sparse and meager in a peculiar way, even where it develops to some extent. The tropical apathy, on the other hand, is caused by a rich, luxuriant vegetation. Putting together these two pictures of the environment, one can say that the apathy which affects the inhabitants of polar regions is different from that affecting the inhabitants of tropical regions. 
The inhabitants are apathetic in both regions, but the apathy results from different causes. In the temperate zone, one finds a balance. There, human capacities are developed in a certain equilibrium. No one will doubt that this has something to do with solar life. But what is the connection? As I said, let me first make a few remarks based on observation and in this way work out the essential concepts. Going to the root of things, we find that the inhabitants living around the poles are powerfully influenced by the sun's forces. In those regions, the earth tends to wrest itself away from the life of the sun. She doesn't let her activity shoot upward from below into the vegetation. But the human being is exposed in these parts to the actual life of the sun. You mustn't try to understand the life of the sun in terms of heat alone. The appearance of the vegetation itself bears witness to this influence upon human beings. We have then a preponderance of solar influence in the polar zones. What kind of life predominates in the tropics? There it is the telluric life, the life of the earth itself. Terrestrial life shoots up into the vegetation, making it rich and luxuriant. This influence also robs humanity of a balanced development of its capacities, but the causes in the north and in the south come from different directions. In the polar regions, the sunlight represses our inner development. In the tropics, what shoots up from the earth represses our inner powers. Thus we see a certain polarity. The polarity shown in the preponderance of the solar life around the poles, and of the terrestrial life in tropical regions in the neighborhood of the equator. If we then observe human nature and have in mind the human gestalt, we can say the following. Please don't object at once if it seems paradoxical for me to be taking the human gestalt seriously. The head, the part of the human form which in its outer configuration emulates universal space, namely the sphere, the spherical shape of the universe as a whole, to begin with the head is exposed also by life in polar regions to extraterrestrial influences. In the tropics, the metabolic system, in its connection with the limbs, is exposed to the life of the earth. We come to a special relationship, you see, of the human head to the cosmic life outside the earth, and of the human metabolic and limb system to the life of the earth itself. Thus we see that humanity participates the universe in such a way as to be coordinated more closely with the cosmic surroundings of the earth in our heads, our nervous systems and senses, and coordinated more closely with the life of earth in our metabolic systems. And it is to the temperate zones that we should look for a kind of continual harmonizing between the systems of the head and the metabolism. In the temperate zones, we'll find that it's principally our rhythmic system that's being developed. You see then that a certain connection exists between this threefold differentiation of the human constitution, the systems of the nerves and senses, the rhythmic system and the metabolic system, and the outer world. 
You see that the systems of the head are more related to the whole cosmos. The rhythmic system is the balance between the cosmos and the earthly world, and the metabolic system is related to the earth itself. Now, we have to take up another indication, which points to an influence of solar life upon humanity in a different direction. The connection between solar life and the human constitution that we have just described can only be related to the interplay of terrestrial and extraterrestrial life over the course of the year. But as a matter of fact, in the course of the day, we are also concerned with a kind of repetition, or something like that, just as in the annual periodicity. The annual cycle is determined by the relation of the sun to the earth, and so is the diurnal cycle. In the language of purely mathematical astronomy, we speak of the diurnal rotation of the earth on its axis and of the annual revolution of the earth around the sun. But then, right from the outset, we're confining ourselves to very simple facts and we aren't justified in assuming that we're really starting from adequate premises that will provide an adequate basis for our investigations. Let's recall everything we've seen now with regard to the course of the year. I won't say, quote, the revolution of the earth around the sun, close quote, yet, but rather the course of the year with its alternating conditions. This must have a connection with the threefold human constitution. Since, through earthly conditions, it finds different expression in the tropics, in the temperate zones, and at the poles, this yearly course must be connected in some way with the nexus of forces shaping the human constitution, with the relationships among the three main constituents of human nature just described. If we are able to take that into consideration, then we acquire a wider basis upon which to build, and hence we can perhaps arrive at something quite different from what we reach when we merely measure the angles that one telescopic vector forms with another. It's a matter of finding broader foundations for our judgments regarding the facts. Astronomy understands the diurnal rhythm in terms of the rotation of the earth upon its axis, but here we can begin to see something else revealing itself we see that human beings are largely independent of this diurnal motion. Our dependence on the annual rhythm, namely on what's connected to the motion over an entire year, the ways that our human gestalt is shaped differently in the various regions of the earth, all this reveals the extent to which humans are determined by the life of the sun, by the changes that appear on earth in consequence of solar life, the diurnal motion determines us less. True, many things of great interest will also be revealed in connection with the diurnal course, but as regards the life of humanity as a whole, it's relatively insignificant. To be sure, there are great differences among specific individuals. Goethe, who was, after all, quite a normal human being in this particular regard, felt himself best attuned to creating in the morning, Schiller at night. This evidence points to the fact 
that the diurnal rhythm has a definite influence upon certain subtler aspects of human nature. Anyone who has a feeling for such things would be able to tell us about having encountered many people who confided that their really important thoughts were hatched at dawn, that is, in the temperate period, as it were, of the diurnal rhythm, not at midday nor at midnight, but at the temperate time of the day. However, it's certainly the case that human beings are in a way independent of the diurnal course of the sun. We'll need to examine the significance of this independence and to show in what way a certain dependence does nevertheless exist. A second element is lunar life, the influences that are connected with the moon. It may be that a great deal of what has been said on this subject in the course of human history appears today to be mere fantastic nonsense. But in one way or another, we see that terrestrial life as such, for example in the phenomena of tidal ebb and flow, is beyond any doubt connected with the motion of the moon. Nor must it be overlooked that the menstrual cycle, although it doesn't coincide in time with the moon's phases, coincides with them in its periodicity, and that therefore something essentially concerned with human evolution is shown to be dependent in its duration upon the phases of the moon. So that one can say the course of the menstrual cycle has been lifted out of the general course of nature, but it has nevertheless remained a true copy of that larger course. Its periodicity is identical. Nor may we overlook, we aren't making rational, exact observations of these things if we reject them at the outset, nor may we overlook that, as a matter of fact, our inner life of fancy and imagination is extraordinarily bound up with the phases of the moon. Anyone who kept a diary of the ebb and flow of their fantasies would notice the extraordinary degree to which it correlated with the moon's phases. The fact that the activity of the moon, lunar life, has an influence upon certain subordinate organs should be studied in the phenomenon of sleepwalking. Sleepwalking yields phenomena that would make for fascinating research, phenomena which are covered up by normal human life but are present in the depths of human nature and point to their totality to the fact that lunar activity is as intimately connected with the human rhythmic system as solar activity is connected with our nervous system and senses. And so we have already found a crossing. We have seen already how solar activity, in its interplay with the forces of the earth, works on the rhythmic system in the temperate zones. Intersecting with this influence, we now have the direct influence of lunar activity upon the rhythmic system. And, if we look at telluric activity, the influences of the earth as such, we must not disregard a realm in which the terrestrial influence makes itself felt, even though this isn't ordinarily taken into account. I ask you to turn your attention to a phenomenon such as homesickness. Now, you might not consider homesickness very important. It can doubtless be explained from the point of view of habit, custom, and so on. But I ask you to note that real physiological effects 
can be produced entirely as a result of this so-called homesickness. Homesickness can go so far as to make someone physically ill. It can express itself in symptoms such as asthma. Study the complex of homesickness with all its symptoms and consequences, asthmatic conditions and general ill health, a kind of emaciation, and it's possible to come to the following conclusion. One comes to see that ultimately the whole feeling of homesickness results from an alteration of the metabolism of the whole metabolic system. Homesickness is the reflection in consciousness of changes in the metabolism, changes entirely due to our having moved from one place with its telluric influences from below to another place with different influences coming from below. Please consider this in connection with other things, which, unfortunately, science as a rule leaves unconsidered. Goethe, as I said, felt most inspired to write poetry, to write his things down in the morning. If he needed a stimulant, however, he took that stimulant, which by its nature takes least direct hold of the metabolic system, but only stirs it up via the rhythmic system, namely wine. Goethe took wine as a stimulant. In this respect he was indeed altogether a, quote, sun person, close quote. He let the influence of the solar activity work upon him. With Schiller or Byron, the opposite was the case. Schiller preferred to write his poetry when the sun had set, that is to say, when the solar influence was hardly active any more and he stimulated himself with something that works right down into the metabolic system, with hot punch. The effect was quite different from that obtained by Goethe from wine. It worked right down into the whole metabolism. Through the metabolism, the earth exerts its influence upon us, so we can say that Schiller was essentially telluric, an earth person. Earth people work more through the emotions and what belongs to the will. Sun people work, rather, through calm and contemplation. For those persons, therefore, who could not endure the solar element, but liked only the telluric, only what is of the earth, Goethe increasingly became, quote, quote, the cold literary greybeard, close quote, as they called him in Weimar, quote, the cold literary greybeard with the double chin, close quote. That was the name which was repeatedly given to Goethe in Weimar in the 19th century. Now, I would like to bring something different to your attention. We have observed how we as human beings are embedded within the cosmic context of earth, sun, moon. The sun working more on the nervous and sensory system, the moon working more on the rhythmic system, the earth, inasmuch as she gives us of her substance as nourishment, and makes substance directly active in us, working upon the metabolic system, working tellurically. We see something in the human constitution through which we can perhaps find starting points for an explanation of the heavens as they exist outside us, upon broader foundations than merely through the measurement of angles by the telescope and so on. This is especially so if we go yet further, if we now consider nature apart from us as human beings, 
but consider nature so as to see more in her than a mere register of external data. Consider the metamorphosis of insects. In the course of the year, it's a complete reflection of the external solar life. I would say that in the case of human beings, we have to direct our research more inwardly if we are to follow the solar, lunar, and telluric influences on human nature. Whereas in studying insect life, with its metamorphoses, we see the course of the year expressed directly in the successive Gestalten that the insect assumes. We can now say to ourselves, perhaps it's also necessary for us to proceed not only quantitatively, but also to take into account the qualitative impression that such phenomena make upon us. Why do we always ask only what a phenomenon of the outer universe looks like in the lens of the telescope? Why not ask, what's the reaction not just of the lens of the telescope, but of the insects? How does human nature react? How does that reveal to us something about the course of celestial phenomena? And ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, aren't we led in this way to broader foundations, making it impossible that on the one hand, theoretically, we should be Copernicans when desiring to explain the world philosophically, while on the other we use the Tychonic system as our basis for calculating the calendar, etc., as practical astronomy still does to this day, or that we are Copernicans, but leave out the most important part of his theory, namely his third axiom. Might we be able to overcome the uncertainties, which are creating burning problems even in the most fundamental realms of astronomy today, by working on a broader basis, by gradually working our way from quantitative to qualitative research within this discipline? Yesterday I sought to point out the connection between celestial and embryonic phenomena. Today, the connection between celestial phenomena and the mature human being. Here you have an indication of one way in which the sciences must be reorganized. Now, take another thing to which I have also referred in the course of today's remarks. I indicated connections between human metabolism and earthly life. In the human constitution, we have the faculties of sensory perception mediated through the nervous system and the senses, somehow connected with solar and cosmic activity as such. We have the rhythmic system connected with what lies between heaven and earth. We have the metabolism related especially to the actual earth, so that in contemplating what really underlies our metabolism, we should be able to get nearer to the real essence of telluric phenomena. But what do we do today if we want to approach the telluric realm? We act like geologists and investigate things from the outside. But things have an inner side also. And isn't it possible that they show their inner side in its true gestalt only when they pass through us as human beings? Nowadays, it has become an ideal to regard the relationship of substances quite apart from the human observer and to stop short there. 
In our chemistry labs, we tinker with substances to observe how they interact and think that we can get at their essential nature that way. But if it were the case that substances only disclosed their essential nature in and through human nature, then we would have to practice chemistry in a way that led right on into human nature itself. Then we would have to form a connection between actual chemistry and the material processes within the human constitution, just as we see a connection between astronomy and embryology, or between astronomy and the whole human gestalt, the threefold nature of the human constitution. You see, these things influence each other reciprocally. We arrive at real life only when we perceive these things as interpenetrating. On the other hand, inasmuch as the earth is poised in cosmic space, we will have to see the connection between telluric and astronomical processes. Now, we have seen a connection between astronomy and the substances of earth, also between the earth and human metabolism, and again a direct influence of the solar and celestial events upon the human constitution itself. Within us as human beings we have a kind of encounter between what comes directly from the heavens and what comes indirectly via earthly substances. Earthly substances work upon the human metabolism, while the celestial influences work directly upon the human constitution as a whole. Hence, the direct influences for which we are indebted to solar activity meet within us as human beings those influences which, passing indirectly through the earth, have undergone a change thereby. Thus we can say, our inner lives as human beings will become explicable even in a physical anatomical sense as a confluence of cosmic activities coming directly from the universe outside the earth and cosmic influences which have first passed through terrestrial processes. These flow together within us as human beings. See figure 4. You see how contemplating the human constitution in its totality, the whole cosmos comes together. If we seek to attain knowledge of human nature, it's essential to perceive this confluence. So, then, what has scientific specialization wrought? It has led us away from reality into pure abstractions. And we have shown that despite its claim to rigor, astronomy calculates the calendar by advocating something other than what it stands for in theory. How it is Copernican in theory, but leaves out the aspect that was most important to Copernicus. Uncertainty creeps in at every point. These modern lines of research do not lead to what matters most of all, an understanding of the ways in which we as human beings are formed out of the entire universe. The end of Lecture 2